Welcome, everybody. We're joined today by Mike Morris from from Memorial. Mike, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself in a second. Firstly, uh, congratulations on your plenary session. You're going to have to be very gentle because Brian hasn't had a plenary session yet and he phoned me beforehand. <laughs> He's a bit touchy about it, to be honest. And, and, and so, so if, there are some, if there are some catty questions, just ignore them. And move on. <laughs> just ignore them. Mike, Will do. And thank you for inviting me, Brian and, uh, and Tom. It's of a course. pleasure to be with you as always. Listen, I was just selected. Do you want to just talk a little bit about, um, um, I mean, Mike, your femorial scattering. I'm sure you'll run the prostate group and other bits and pieces. Um, very successful, et cetera. Why was this work selected as a ASCO this year? I think for two reasons, uh, uh, Tom. The first is it's a treatment uh, that for patient population that just had very, very few treatment possibilities. That is the post uh, Abby and Enza and post docetaxel, cabazitaxel treated patient population. So that of course is a, a new opportunity to prolong life in patients with few opportunities um, right now. And the second reason I think is because it's a, a new drug class for prostate cancer. And so that's significant in and of itself with real clinical benefit improving overall survival in RPFS. So I, I think those two entrees into the disease are what, make, what sets it apart. Could you give, I mean, people know the trial design, but could you just give us a really two second overview of, obviously it's a big round of my space three, a bit of an overview of the trial design and some of the strengths, but also importantly, some of the weaknesses of the trial design. Absolutely. So uh, first of all, a little bit about this drug. It is a, a small molecule that targets a, a surface protein that's called prostate-specific membrane antigen, or PSMA. PSMA has been around for a long time as both a diagnostic and, an, and a, um, a therapeutic target. It's been well-credentialed, and it's primarily expressed in prostate cancer across all phases of the disease, as well as uh, most metastatic sites. Uh, it's in about 80% of the prostate cancer population who have uh, metastatic CRPC. Uh, carrying a payload um, of lutetium-177, that's a beta emitter. So the small molecule hauls that uh, lutetium around. It's injected into the blood. It circulates around, finds metastatic disease by virtue of binding to PSMA. And then the whole molecule is endocytosed into the prostate cancer cell where it then is released the PSMA recycles to the surface where it can bind to another drug molecule and the radiation that's now internalized kills that prostate cancer cell and the prostate cancer cells that are around it as sort of a by, by, bystander effect. Uh, this, so, yeah, go ahead. Mike, I was going to say, talk, you've, got, you've done a lot of work personally in, in your group with the radionucleotides. So talk about, you know, how lutetium is chosen, the dosing, how you get the dosing right, and that's sort of practical Sure considerations. Thing. So you're absolutely right. This has been a, a long endeavor for many of us in prostate cancer, been researching radioligand therapies. And, you know, I think the first evidence that there is a systemic but targeted form of radiation that's beneficial in prostate cancer was probably from the bone-seeking radiopharmaceuticals, uh, notably radium, which was the latest approval in that class. But unlike uh, the bone-seeking radiopharmaceuticals, the tumor-directed pharmaceuticals can pretty much kill disease wherever it's located. It's not, it doesn't have to be in bone. It can be in nodes, soft tissue, et cetera. So uh, that was a really big advance. The second big advance that led this to be a success was the 
was a development by Marty Pomfer primarily at Hopkins. So the small molecules which get out of the body really quickly uh, to minimize the amount of circulating uh, uh, radioactivity. The radioactivity that's used for this drug, it's a fixed dose of 200 millicuries. It's injected once every, every six weeks. You get a total of a max of six cycles. So that's 36 weeks of therapy. That's what was used in the, the trial as well. You essentially got four doses. And then if you were responding, still had some residual disease, you got another two doses. Uh, it's, a, it's pretty easy to administer. It's all outpatient therapy. It takes about a half an hour of chair time, basically, uh, from you know room in to room out. Um, and so, you know, the, the trial itself used this regimen of 200 millicuries given every six weeks for four increasable to six. Uh, the randomization was basically that everybody got a physician selected standard of care. Um, in order to be eligible, these patients uh, could, were, were considered to be inappropriate candidates for further chemotherapy. Um, they were randomized to two to one for um, some non-chemotherapeutic standard of care to receive lutetium plus that standard versus the standard alone. And the primary endpoints were OS and RPFS. And, and so what's the commonest control arm? So let's talk about that control arm for a minute. So um, clearly in a combination strategy, uh, you have to have safety data on the combination, right? So we don't have safety data on the radiopharmaceuticals uh, plus docetaxel or cabazitaxel or pembro or many other drugs. So those uh, combinable regimens for which we do not have safety data were excluded. But on the other hand, these patients were all post-androgen receptor pathway inhibitors and post one to two regimens of chemotherapy. And their clinicians needed to say that they weren't chemotherapy uh, candidates. So I think that had received the primary prolonging therapies, uh, perhaps with the exception of radium-223, um, in terms of you know whether they were denied something by virtue of having a non-chemotherapeutic uh, standard of care, and if you look at the number of patients who got chemotherapy after the after the protocol, it was only about twenty percent. So it's not like uh, the, the 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 control arm was denying them some uh, you know magic bullet here that would give them a significant yeah. life. So what, what did they get? What was the primary things that they got were um, other hormonal therapies. So if they mm -hmm. originally qualified by getting Abby, they got Enza and vice versa. They got glucocorticoids. They got paleo radiation therapy, the usual supportive measures okay. that we do for this very, very and, late patient population. And Mike, with this control arm, with the uncertainty around it, what was the dropout rate uh, in that control arm? So when the trial first opened, there was a significant problem um, in regards to the dropout rates. Uh, about 50% of the patients dropped out at randomization before any treatment when assigned to the control arm. So this wasn't a control arm, uh, you know, intolerance or unacceptance issue. This was that the patients wanted to get lutetium and their yeah. investigators were allowing them to be randomized without having even started a, a standard of care. And before any treatment, those patients dropped out. This was a physician and 
a and an investigator issue more so i would say than it was a patient issue so with re-education and with uh a lot of uh hooking up nuclear medicine physicians with medical oncologists to better manage the control arm in this advanced patient population that uh, dropout rate significantly dropped, uh, you know, from the uh, 50, from, from initially 56% before that cessation of accrual of re-education, reinforcing of the attentive study to 16% uh, in the control arm. So I, I think that was probably a training issue and a collaboration issue and, a, and an understanding that the trial has to involve multiple disciplines. It's nuclear medicine as well as medical oncology because these patients have really advanced disease. And it involves systemic treatments that uh, were beyond lutetium in order to participate in the Mike, trial on that standard care. Yeah. So from yeah. a global perspective, where did the trial enroll and did this dropout rate result in imbalances in the baseline characteristics? This was a, a European as well as a US study. Um, I haven't looked at where most of those imbalances uh, occurred. I certainly know from the U.S. sites that there, there, a fair amount of those imbalances were here in the United States. On the other hand, when you look at uh, the post-protocol follow-up of these patients, very few of these patients received lutetium um, by going to Europe in order, you know, we are accessible and very few of these patients also received post-protocol radium. So I really do think this was an investigator issue uh, more than anything else. And by addressing the investigators, the dropout rate went from 56 to 16 percent. So Mike, talk about the high level results and, and sort of they exceeded your expectations or based on what you designed the study around. Sure. So um, there were two primary endpoints. One was OS. Cutting to the chase, the hazard ratio was 0.62 for OS. So in other words, a 38% reduction in the risk of death. Um, in, in this late population, the standard of care arm lived less than a year at, at a median at 11 months. And this, uh, the addition of lutetium increased their survival by an additional four months to a median of 15 months. So that four-month uh, prolongation in OS is pretty typical for almost all uh, recent FDA approvals in advanced patients. So that's not surprising. I think the relative uh, benefit with a hazard ratio of uh, 0.6 is quite good. Um, if you think of what the, the, the improvement in the risk of death for, let's say, chemotherapy, right, that's a 20 to 30 percent improvement in OS. So this was a 40 percent improvement, basically, right? Um, if you look at RPFS, which, of course, is a measure of what, what's happening in terms of disease control while on treatment, as opposed to OS, which is on treatment and off treatment, uh, or post-treatment, the median improvement in RPFS or time to radiographic progression or death was 60% with a hazard ratio of 0.4. And the median improvement in the, in the improvement in the median RPFS was five months, that is from 3.4 to 8.7 months with the, improve, with the addition of lutetium uh, to the standard of was care. Was there any evidence that this said this targets wherever PSMA is expressed, so it's not bone specific like radium, any evidence of a differential effect among organs? Um, we don't have the breakdown yeah. data yet. We have to actually look at a lot of things in relationship to what you're touching on here, which is, is there a relationship between PSMA expression and 
response. And remember, all of these patients had to be eligible by getting a PSMA scan up front so we could actually see what the targeting was in various organs and see how that targeted impact overall survival. So that whole analysis still has to uh, occur. I would say that it's important to recognize that with that PSMA screening study, only 13% of the patients were actually excluded from participation in the trial for PSMA negative disease. So that, that's quite a different approach than the previous PSMA-based theranostic studies. If you look, for example, at the, the uh, Mike Hoffman's therapy study, right, the, the, the Australian approach has been to really carefully select using a combination of PSMA and FDG imaging for patients most likely to respond. And I think what this study shows is you can be a lot looser with your entry criteria to the extent that you're actually only excluding uh, to, you know, just over 10% of the population at 13% and still benefit the majority of these patients. So I think that's a very important uh, point that Mike, what you know, this trial was a lot more liberal in terms mm -hmm. of its acceptance. Yeah, go ahead. Plot show, uh, were there subgroups that benefit and what are the biomarker development plans around this? So to take the, uh, the forest plot issue up uh, first, the forest plot did not show that there were really any uh, pre-stratified subsets of patients that surprisingly either responded extraordinarily well or extraordinarily poorly. There were a few items on the, on the, uh, on the forest plots, especially in terms of racial breakdowns of patients where we're getting into just a handful of patients in which the forest plot did cross one, but basically all anticipated subgroups that were the strat factors for the trial looked like they benefited from therapy. In terms of biomarkers, the most important biomarker, I think, both in terms of a therapeutic approach and as well as the utilization of social resources approach is this relationship between imaging and therapy. So doing PSMA PET scans on everyone who qualifies for this, uh, for this type of therapy is a major investment in, on society's part. And we really need to understand better if we can use those scans to their best effect to really identify the treatment paper, the population that will benefit. And also, I guess you, with equipoise, you need to see whether those scans are actually contributing significantly into, into uh, patient selection, because it's a big deal to get a scan on a, on a patient before uh, they receive the therapy, especially as this therapy moves earlier in the disease uh, um, spectrum. We're talking about a lot of patients and a lot of resources. And Mike, what about toxicity? What, what did you see in terms of toxicity? So the major thing that we are concerned about with all PSMA-directed radioligand therapy is xerostomia because the, the, these molecules do insinuate themselves into both the lacrimal and the salivary glands. And in the past, xerostomia has been an issue. So in this trial, xerostomia occurred in 39% of the patients. That was all-grade tox. No high-grade xerostomia was seen. There's also in around 40% of the population nausea and vomiting all-grade that's uh, controllable with pre-meds. About 1.5% of the patients had high-grade nausea and vomiting. And again, that's an infusion-related issue, not mm -hmm. a long-term toxicity. And then there's marrow suppression. So in terms of high-grade tox, 13% of the patient population had anemia and then 8% had high-grade thrombocytopenia. And again, no new signal here. All of these issues are present with radioligand therapy. And I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, if you look at how many patients actually couldn't complete treatment 
um, as a result of toxicity or as a minority of patients. And most of these patients received all the full six doses that were uh, intended. Mike, talk about durability. So one of the issues, I guess, will be that you're treating patients towards the end of their lives in its current setting. Yeah. Um, and um, by shifting the median survival by four months is a massive step. Um, but for many people, their ambition will probably be greater than that. Was there any evidence of long term durability? And is there an issue of rechallenge with the same drug if patients work the well the first time? Good question. So I think that the rechallenge question will need to come from a separate trial, right, where we approach that, that question with long-term safety data with further administration. I suspect, but certainly don't know, that um, the FDA will approach this like it did with radium. You have safety data on six doses, and so six doses is what you'll get. Uh, in terms of, you know, long-term duration of effect, course, this is a patient population that is prostate cancer. And with most prostate cancer trials, the median really underrepresents the true experience of, of the majority of patients because the median actually just describing the middle patient. And the reality is in that prostate cancer, you get long-term responders to almost any therapy and then some group of responders that, that, that either don't respond or respond very, very briefly. I think if you talk to most of the investigators or even those pa folks who have been sending their patients for radioligand therapy overseas in the period in which it's not been available, I think that you'll find that m most people do have patients who really respond for very durable periods of time. Um, certainly Mike Hoffman had shown that in uh, his studies. And so even in these very advanced populations, you do get patients who really um, respond quite what terribly. What are the characteristics of those patients? Certainly we would love to know that, wouldn't we? <laughs> right, that's the biomarker question. Can we pre-identify those patients uh, ahead of time. Is that a, qu a question of just their disease biology and genomics? Or is, you know, for example, we all speculate that the DNA repair deficient patient population would be particularly uh, responsive to this type of therapy? Or is that an issue of dosimetry? That is how much radiation gets into the tumor and that correlates with the duration of response? Or is that there's some other feature such as distribution of disease? For example, is that a, a you know, a virtue of having primarily bony disease versus bone and liver disease versus liver disease alone. All these questions are going to have to get teased apart over the next several years so we can best optimize the marriage here of patient population with treatment. And Mike, at the moment, we don't know if, for example, the DDR or the elaborate treated population is doing particularly better or worse. That was or wasn't in the forest block. That that was not in the forest plot. This this trial, its inception was pre-elaborate with recaparib approval. Hey, Mike, I have one sort of big picture question with some subparts left. I'd sure. first like to note, I haven't asked a single caddy question during this. No, not at all, in fact. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we chatted about it beforehand, Mike. It was very, it was so, very upset. So it's very about, upset. you know, sort of the obvious, you know, where's it going from here? Where does it fit in? And there's sort of maybe two subparts to that. One is, is other standard of care therapy needed or can it be standalone? And then the second part is, you mentioned radium before, which is an alpha emitting radionucleotide. Is there any reason that you can or should use those in combination or is that they just really distinct and separate? So um, for that latter question, the role that radium will play in the future, I think is something that we're going to have to sort of uh, see where it fits mm -hmm. into, the, into the armamentarium and how it's going to be used. 
Um, I, you know, to having a tumor directed radioligand therapy that makes PSA go down and that makes scans clear is, is a pretty reaffirming thing to both patients and to clinicians. And radium doesn't really have those features. Mm -hmm. Plus, a radioligand therapy can, that can go to nodal disease, circulating disease, and soft tissue disease also adva offers advantages. So I do see radium having a, a probably a more significant, excuse me, uh, lutetium PSMA having a more significant role, both in terms of patient and clinician satisfaction and, and as well overall biologic advantages mm -hmm. that radium doesn't have. So I, I do see it um, displacing radium to some degree um, and leaving a question of where radium will stand. Radium certainly has an excellent safety profile, and mm -hmm. there's no reason why these can't be sequenced, why a patient couldn't mm -hmm. get radium up front or radium following. And I think that that is a really good question as to sort of what's the this going to be the safety and, of that. And standard of care needed? I mean, it was sort of a trial design issue, but so think about how we have deployed radium and also what standard of care means, right? So uh, because the Alsimka trial also was standard of care plus or minus mm -hmm. radium. And that's been interpreted really quite loosely. So sometimes patient standard of care is just opiates, uh, palliative RT, and mm -hmm. glucocorticoids, right? So, and, which is basically supportive care for symptomatology. Sometimes it's standard of care uh, could be other therapeutics that you have in your armamentarium. And, and you know, the, the standard of care on this trial was much the same. It was the best management of the medical oncologist uh, for the patient's own individual situation. So I think that that same degree of latitude will apply after, we hope, the FDA approves this, um, which allows the doctor to be the best doctor that he or she can be in order to treat the patient. What you decide standard of care should be will really be entirely up to them as long as it stays within a safely combinable regimen. Yeah. That's the key. Mike, radium wasn't taken up in the same way as perhaps abiraterone or other agents in this setting. Yeah. Um, the, this is obviously the data set's different. It's a, it's a different approach. But in broad terms, there are many parallels. Uh, why is this going to have a similar impact or is it going to be larger? And if, uh, why would that be the case? I don't think that this is uh, the same as radium from a patient uh, or clinician uh, adoption standpoint. Remember that um, one of the reasons that we had such a high dropout rate initially is because there, there really is a huge amount of patient enthusiasm for this. Patients want to see their scans improve, if not clear. Patients want to see that their PSA goes to no measurable amount. Clinicians do as well. I'm not separating those interests. They do uh, dovetail. And so I think you're already seeing a lot of patients who can't afford it uh, already going to Germany, going to Australia to get treated. They're voting with their feet on this even pre-approval, right? They're establishing the market uh, need for this already. My, so I... I think there will be widespread adoption. Let's yes. assume it gets FDA approved. Where does this fit into your treatment paradigm? Just talk about, you know, let's say we've got a typical patient with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, just talk about where this fits in. What are you giving first line? When does this? When is this incorporated into the pathway, assuming you have unlimited resource and it's approved? If you look at most patients who are newly diagnosed with prostate cancer now, they're going to get ADT and an ARSI or docetaxel. So they're, they're going to come into metastatic disease uh, ha having already been exposed to, if not refractory, to those 
uh, agents. For most of my patients, they, they are getting either Abby or Anza or APA as opposed to Dosi. And so when they come into metastatic CRPC, then they're going to get docetaxel. So this agent would be typically the one that might follow that. I do think that the DDR population is a special one because they do have drugs that are specifically approved for them. So for them, it will probably be ADT and an ARSI, followed by a PARP inhibitor, followed by DOSI, followed by RLT. And Mike, given that many men with advanced prostate cancer don't want chemotherapy, and I recognize this would be off-label and outside of your data set, would you give it prior to chemotherapy? Is that reasonable or unreasonable? There is a study that's, uh, that's now actively accruing, looking at lutetium PSMA in the pre-chemotherapy population. Yeah. I think that, that that trial will accrue quickly and we'll have those data you know, relatively quickly in order to answer that question. But until, um, I certainly see a role for it, but there's no data around no. it until yeah. that trial complete, is completed. And I, my, my practice in terms of standards of care is to practice where the data are and otherwise put the patients on studies. Yeah. So that's an international trial. There is an opportunity to put those patients on pre-chemo within the context of a, of a clinical yeah. trial, and that's where they should go. Mike, last last, last you question for me, are there, are there other trials? You mentioned the pre-chemo trial. What other yes. trials are going on? So there's a, 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 a collaboration between Novartis and, uh, and NRG and Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology um, of a study that will be led in the U.S. by um, Scott Tagawa and uh, Oliver Sarder. Um, and that study is looking at newly diagnosed men with metastatic disease it's a randomization between ADT and the ARSI of choice of the physician plus or minus lutetium with a primary endpoint of RPFS. Wow. So that's moving this whole treatment into the castration sensitive population, which is a whole new real step in uh, the earlier direction on the disease spectrum. Awesome. Mike, um, so what are there other radionucleotides that are being developed and what do they look like and how are they being tested? Absolutely. So there are other lutetium-based radionucleotides. So there is certainly an effort with antibodies still looking at J591 with uh, both lutetium as well as actinium. Uh, there's uh, small molecules that are being explored with actinium as well. There are new targets such as HK2, which is uh, similar to PSA, but it's membrane bound um, with an actinium payload that uh, is in now its dose finding study. And then there's the thorium, um, which is a P PSMA uh, uh, targeted antibody with an alpha payload study that um, that is in its dose finding as well. So there, it's, you know, th and that's just the single agent studies. There are also a host of combination studies that are in early phases uh, being developed as regimens right now. So it's really quite an active field. There are a lot of new treatment possibilities, not just for earlier patient populations, but new combinations, new targets, new payloads, payloads that have different uh, properties in terms of potential side effects versus benefit uh, relationship. So there's a lot of work going on and a lot of hope for patients here. My, my last question, there, there isn't a, uh, what can other tumor types learn from this? We haven't used radionucleotides widely in other tumor groups. Um, we're developing antibody drug conjugates, obviously, and there are other bits and pieces. We're spending perhaps more time on immune therapy than you are on prostate cancer for lots of different reasons. What can the wider field learn from this? 
A few things. So one thing would be that, you know, the approach works for some of the major solid tumors. Right now, you do have Lutathera that's FDA approved for, you know, GI uh, neuroendocrine tumors, but such a relatively small patient population compared to something like prostate cancer. You could adopt this, uh, you could adapt this uh, technology for breast, colorectal, lung, et cetera. And indeed, those efforts are in their nascency. Um, And I think that logistically, um, everybody's going to have to expand their capacity in nuclear medicine or radiation oncology in order to accommodate these large solid tumors uh, from just a logistic standpoint. And then finally, in terms of how oncologists, radiation oncologists, and nuclear medicine physicians collaborate in taking care of these patients, you know, we will show in prostate that it's feasible to do so that the other diseases can see that, 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 that that's feasible and make those adaptations as well and how they practice in a more multidisciplinary manner. Any last questions from you, Brian? No, I think this is great, Mike. Thanks for your time. Mike, really appreciate one, it. One last question from me. Any advice for Brian on how to get his plenary session? <laughs> <laughs> Mike's Brian's been trying doing, to help me for 20 years. It's you know, Brian's work, so. doing pretty well, I think, <laughs> with, even without that. So um, I think that, you know, you, you've advanced the field of kidney cancer <laughs> to such a degree that uh, the, the plenary just doesn't plenary matter. Plenary Okay, okay. Mike, listen, <laughs> Congratulations. Mike, you've, been, uh, you've been very gracious today, and uh, you've been uh, you've been a great friend to both Brian and myself, and, and we're very uh, we're very uh, proud and honoured uh, that you were able to join us today. Congratulations! It's a huge deal. I agree. I think it's terrific data. And, Thanks um, so really much. Exciting. Thanks for having me, and here's to see each other live next year. We will indeed. Bye-bye. All right. Very good. Bye-bye. Okay, I start recording. Okay. Now. So I'm recording this. Fucking bull.